So let's dig into it. Joshua chapter 7, we're going to go 7, 8, and 9. Probably won't read most of it in the early uh, worship gathering. I only read verse 1, and then I basically just narrated the rest of it. So we need to, uh, we need to cover that ground. Um, and the people in the back of the room are telling me I should give an extra plug for Christmas for everyone. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. When you leave this room, stop off at that table and sign up to help. All right. So let's get into Joshua chapter 7. We've been in this series where we're trying to cover what it means to be fearless, and if not fearless, to at least fear less. We're trying to cover some ground to understand what it means for us to be people who no longer allow fear to control our lives. And the theme verse for this whole series comes in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, where we read these words. God says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. We've been trying to cover the ground of what does it mean for us to realize God is with us. And the first week we learned that that means we have to remember him. We have to remember his provision. We have to remember his presence. We have to remember his promises. And it also means that we need to keep taking our next steps so that when we remember what God has done in our past, we step with God into our future. And so that's our review for the last couple of weeks. But I don't have a lot of time to get into all the past review because I need to jump into the stuff for today. Today we look at step number three. The third ingredient to becoming a person who fears less is to unhide. Unhide. Um, I'll phrase it differently, and I want you to write this down. We've got some blanks on your note sheet that you should fill in. But it says this, the fearless have nothing to hide. You might say the unhidden have nothing to fear. The fearless have nothing to hide. There's a problem anytime we hide stuff. Anytime we bear a secret, every, anytime we hide something in our hearts, there's a, a reason to have fear, at least two reasons to have fear. Reason number one is if the thing is scary enough for me to hide it, then it's scary enough to damage me. And it damages me and it damages my relationships, it damages uh, my interactions with other people, it damages the way I view the world, the way I view my life, just the fact that the secret is hidden in me is enough to change me and how I relate to the rest of the world. And so it always does damage in me because if it's something I have to keep from you, then that means there's a part of me I'm keeping from you and we can't be in the kind of relationship we were designed to have. So anytime I'm hiding something, it by itself damages me. And that's a reason to be afraid. But there's, of course, the other reason to be afraid is that anytime I am hiding something, if it's scary enough for me to keep it under wraps, how much scarier is it when you find out about it? Because eventually the secret comes out. In almost every case, eventually the secret comes out. And when it gets out, now I'm doubly scared because I'm just as scared of it as I was before. And now I'm, a, I'm scared of you because you know what's going on in my life, and you know what's happening. And so anytime we have something hidden, we've got reason to be afraid. But fearless people, I contend, have nothing to hide. So in Joshua chapter 7, we begin to see the story play out. 
And if you remember last week, Joshua and the people of Israel marched around the city of Jericho seven times, one time for each day. And then on the seventh day, they added six more times. So it was a total of seven times on the seventh day. And then at the end of all of their marching, the walls fell down and the people rushed in. There was a thing that happened though, that Joshua told all the people of Israel that they were not allowed to keep anything they found in the city. The entire city was supposed to be a sacrifice. The entire city was supposed to be set on fire as a sacrifice to God. And all of the things that were in the city were supposed to be completely incinerated. None of the plunder was supposed to be kept. And we talked a little bit about that all last week. And we learned that one person was spared though, Rahab, plus all of her family were spared. And so even though God said the entire city should be destroyed, the person in the city who asked for mercy got mercy. And so she was spared, her family was spared, but everything else in the city was destroyed. We talked a little bit about that last week. But today we come to chapter 7 and we read these words. Verse 1, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. I'm going to spend more than half of our time just on this one verse. Because see, what happens here is so incredibly important. There's a lot going into it. Achan, when he sees the plunder of Jericho, he decides some of it is going to be kept. He takes it, he keeps it, he buries it, and it's now his. The question for you and me is what motivated him and what's the result? Well, I'll tell you the result. The result of what happened is that Joshua takes his men to the next city, and they go to the next city. The next city is called Ai, and they scope out the land, and they realize the people of Ai are far less capable than the people of Jericho, and so you only need to send a few people, just a couple thousand of men in the army to go up against Ai, and they're about ready to go up against Ai, but they get routed. 36 of them die, and they get routed and sent out, and Joshua is like, what in the world is going on? God, you promised that any place we set our feet would be ours, and now we are being confronted with defeat. What is happening here? And God says, it's because Achan took some stuff. You see, what happens is Achan stole some things, and it says God's anger burned against him. So we have to ask the question, if Achan's sin yielded that kind of a bad result where many people died, and God was angry with the people, Maybe we need to address the fact of what his sin really was and how it might translate to us today. There are three words that go along with Achan's sin that I want to have you write down. The three words are these, distrust, greed, and blasphemy. There are three things that are underlying Achan's sin. Now, we don't know exactly what his motives were, and we don't exactly know what were all the reasons why he took what he took, but these are three things that I think might have played apart. The first one is distrust. You see, what God had said is that God had said, I am going to give you the whole land and you are going to return back to me the first city, the first portion, because this is how God works. God promises you immense blessing and starts by giving you a little bit as a test. And that little bit was Jericho. 
And that little bit was God saying, I'm going to give you victory here, but you're going to burn the entire thing. You're going to destroy the entire thing. The whole city is a sacrifice to me. The whole city is devoted to me. God says, I'm going to give you a little bit. And depending on how you view the little bit I give you at first, that lets me know whether or not I can give you the rest. Because God's principle is, I will give you the first, and then I will give you the rest. And the first doesn't belong to you. The first you bring back to me. Achan doesn't trust, perhaps. He doesn't trust that God can bring the wealth in the future, and so Achan takes the present for himself. He's not sure that he can trust God for the future, so he takes the present for himself. Does that make sense? It's it's possibly distrust that's going on in Achan's heart. It could possibly just be greed. You know what greed is? Greed is just simply being willing to do the wrong thing to get the thing that you want. I don't deserve it. I don't own it. It doesn't belong to me. It shouldn't belong to me, but I don't care. I want it anyway. And so I do something wrong to get the thing that I want. It could just be plain greed. It could also be blasphemy. And this is a word we don't use a lot today. Uh, We don't use the word commonly, and we don't understand what it means, but blasphemy just basically means this. Anytime you reduce the level of God, that's blasphemy. Anytime you bring God down a few pegs, that's blasphemy. So a person who would say, I like this more than I like God, that's blasphemy because God being the supreme being over all things, if he is not, if there's something you like more than God, then that means God has been brought down a few pegs in your life. And as a result, that would be considered blasphemy. Idolatry is a part of it, but blasphemy is anytime you bring God down a few pegs. And so here's Achan and he sees the wealth of the city around him. And he knows that God has demanded all of it to be for him as a sacrifice. And Achan says, God doesn't need all of that. God isn't worth all of that. Some of it is extra and the extra can go to me. See, Achan says, I don't have to worship God all the way. I'm just going to worship God enough. And if I worship God enough, then the rest of it can be mine. But by doing that, he is raising the stuff, and he is raising himself, and he is diminishing God. Blasphemy. So it could be one of these three things. The question, of course, to us is, do these three things still work today? Do we still have blasphemy? Do we still have distrust? Do we still have greed? Well, yes. And there's some major ways these things show up. And they show up most clearly if I identify for you the things that God has demanded of us. You see, God demanded from the people of Israel the city of Jericho. That city is mine, he said. Well, what has he demanded from us? There are three very key things that the Bible would tell us do not belong to us, they belong to God. And so I'm going to spend a significant portion of time reading you some verses from throughout the Bible to see the different parts of the Bible that tell us the things that we don't own that God owns instead. And take a look at this. We start in Leviticus. It says, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. You see, from the earliest days of the people living in the promised land, and even before they got into the promised land, God created this, pre- this pattern for them, this principle, where God says, I'm giving you the whole land, 
all of it. I'm giving you all the blessings of all the land. So the first portion comes back to me. The only problem with it is that the first portion is the one that we've been waiting for. The first portion is the one that we've been hoping for. And so when the first person, first portion shows up and we don't keep it for ourselves but release it to God, that's an expression of gratitude, not for the present, but gratitude for the future. That's an expression of trust. And God says, this is how it's going to work. I'm going to give you the first portion. When it comes to crops and land, he uses the word tithe, which refers to 10%, or he uses the word first fruits, which refers to the first harvest. The whole thing goes back to God. But then he also does this thing where he talks about animals. So it's, it's, like, a, it's like almost a tax, but not quite a tax, because God says, I want the first 10% and do it this way. Once a year, the animals pass into the pen. And as they go past the gate of the pen, you hold a rod above them and you just count. And so every time a new sheep goes under the rod, you give that sheep a number. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And if that tenth sheep was your best sheep, it goes to God. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And if that tenth sheep was your worst sheep, it goes to God. Another 10. And if that 10th sheep was your middle sheep, it goes to God. Because see, God isn't saying at this point, he's not saying, I want you to decide which portion of your income comes to me. No. He says, I want you to follow this principle. Shave off 10%, hand it over to me, and let me decide how it's used. God says, I don't want you to make decisions over this. This just comes back to me. So here's the first thing that God says belongs to him. It's the 10%. Keep going. There's other passages on this. In Malachi, he says, Will you, a mere mortal, rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. You see, for decades, the people of Israel lived in the comfort of the promised land and forgot the God who gave it to them. And for years, they had forgotten to give God the tithe of the land and the first fruits of the crops and the tenth of the animals. And God said, listen, you have no idea. The reason your crops fail, the reason your animals are so infertile, the reason your enemies are bugging you so much is that you're under a curse. You haven't been bringing to me the first, and so I haven't been able to give you the rest. If you're satisfied with 10%, fine. But if you'd like 90, I can take care of that. God says after this, he would say, just bring it to me and I will start blessing you again. Now, this is very thin ice. You can't say, as some churches, some preachers do, you can't say, all you need to do is give, give God a little and he will give you a lot. You can't say that. What you can say is God has already given me my blessing and I have been hoarding the extra. That's the thing. And God may find that he could bless you even more if you were able to release what he has demanded. But 
That's not the only passage that talks about this. Let's, let's go into the New Testament, see what Jesus says. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. If you put your money somewhere, your heart is going to follow you. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then the, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And you're asking the question, I thought we were talking about money, and now all of a sudden he's talking about eyeballs and whether they work well or not. And I got to tell you, well, there's a play on words that's happening here. The Greek word that we translate healthy can also be translated generous. And so he says, if your eyes are generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are ungenerous, your whole body will be full of darkness. There's a dual meaning here, a play on words, where he's saying, if generosity is the course of your life, then your life will be filled with light. And if generosity is not, if your eyes are viewing things from the standpoint of greed, if your eyes are viewing things from the standpoint of of hoarding, wanting, then your body will be full of darkness. And then he goes farther. He says this next line. Let's put up the next slide. He says, no one can serve two masters, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says, you've got an option to let your life be filled with darkness or to have your life be filled with light, and you cannot serve God and money. It's an either or. You can have God or money. Write it down this way. A curse remains on people who don't put God above money. Achan saw some stuff. He kept the stuff. And it didn't turn out too well for him or the people around him. But that's just one thing God has demanded from us. There are two more. Let me take you to the next one real quick. The next one is really your heart or maybe your whole person. It says this. They come to Jesus. They say, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Okay, so I know you think we're going to talk about money again. No, we're not. Keep reading. He says, you hypocrites, why are you trying? Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And this is really brilliant that what Jesus does here. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And some people use this passage and I think it is valid to do so, but some people use this passage to talk about, well, God demands the tithe and so you're supposed to bring the tithe back to him. But actually, that's not what it's talking about. And it all comes down to this very important word that Jesus uses. And it's brilliant. Man, I just love how Jesus does this stuff. He says, give me a coin. They bring him a coin. And he asks the question, whose image and whose inscription? Whose image and whose inscription? Caesar's face is right on the coin. Whose image is this? Whose inscription? His words are on the coin. Whose image and whose words? Well, if this little coin here is the image of Caesar. Give it back to Caesar. But give to God what's God's. What is the image of God? Where do we find that in this world? What in this world is made in the image of God? Us. See, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, so Caesar wants a stupid little coin? Give it to him. Let's talk about images for a moment. Who bears the image of God? Who bears the word of God? But the people of God. Everyone on this planet is created in the image of God. Some of us bear his words and some of us don't. But I'll tell you what. Give to God what is God's. Let Caesar have whatever it is he wants, but give to God what is God's. In other words, you and me, us. 
Uh, Keep reading. In 1 Corinthians, we find other ones, but before we get that, let's go to Luke. He says, Then he said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Jesus is like, hang on a second here. You can try to keep you, but you will lose you. If instead you lose you for me, you will get you. This is an amazing flip. It's an amazing flip. You can try to save your life, but you will lose it. The only security is when you lose your life in my direction, and then I can give it back to you because I'm the God of resurrection, Jesus would say. Write it down this way. A curse remains on all those who live for themselves. If you look in the mirror and you're like, that's the image of Jeff. I'm keeping this for myself then you have, first of all, lied because you're not me. But secondly, you have said the wrong thing because you are the image of God. He owns you, all of you. And it's our job to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and give ourselves completely to God because if we don't, a curse lies on those who would live for themselves. They're the ones who lose themselves. And now let's go into Romans chapter 12 because there's a third thing God demands of us. Romans chapter 12 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. God made us. That means he shaped us. That means he owns the universe and all the atoms in it, including the atoms and molecules that make up your body. And since he owns your body, your body belongs to him, and therefore the most reasonable thing you can do, the only thing that truly qualifies as worship, is when you say, God, you can have me. Me, my heart, but also me, my body, my physicality. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says this, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. And if we zoom out from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 to see the surrounding verses, we'll see this. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. God says, listen, the way you use your physical body is not up to you to decide. You were bought at a price. Honor God with your body. Look at this next passage from 1 Corinthians. It says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. This is the writer telling us in the Old Testament times, some people got this wrong. Some people got this whole letting God be in charge of you thing wrong. Don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. And why shouldn't we do this? Well, let's keep reading. He gives us some warnings. He says, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Now he's saying, listen, in the Old Testament times, sometimes people did the wrong stuff. And in the Old Testament times, they did the wrong stuff and God would judge them. I mean, thousands of people died when God judged them. And you and I think, oh, we don't have to worry about that, do we? And he says, hang on a second. Let's keep reading. 
He says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Listen, Jesus is the thing everybody has been waiting for. And the writer here is telling us, you know him, which means you are the pinnacle of all human existence because you know Jesus and he has come. And so if you think you're at the pinnacle, be very careful because the fall is steep. He says, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And it ends up here. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. See, his point here is that even though God's judgment might be different today, a curse still remains on those people who would indulge their temptations. The Bible would encourage us to realize that God owns your money, your heart, and your body. God owns you, your physical reality, and your wealth. And those who would retain these things for themselves, instead of releasing them to God as he asks, would be just like the people of old, just like Achan, people under a kind of a curse. And you're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought God was a God of forgiveness. I thought God was a God of grace. And I'll tell you, yeah, he's certainly a God of forgiveness and grace. You're not dead yet. Every single one of us is living in God's grace every single moment he doesn't judge us. The question from this point forward is whether or not we can get past the stuff that we have been keeping for ourselves and release these things back to God. Because I got to tell you, the teaching of the entirety of Scripture from Genesis all the way through Revelation is clear. You have something to fear if you are holding back on God. Just like Achan, just like anyone else, you have something to fear if you are holding back on God. So now let me tell you the rest of the story, what happens in Joshua chapter 7. I'm going to put the entire Bible passage in your live event notes so you can uh, scroll along if you want to see it. But basically what happens is in chapter 7, uh, Joshua falls down on his face. He says, God, why did you let us get defeated by AI? Why did you let us get defeated by these people? You promised us that we would have victory, and now we don't have victory. And God says to Joshua, Joshua, get off your face, stand up. It's obvious, isn't it? I gave a simple command. I said the whole thing needs to be devoted to me. Someone has kept something for themselves. That's why you faced military hardship. That's why you don't have my favor. That's why my anger is against you. That's why you've experienced this curse. That's why you haven't had the success that you want to have. That's why you haven't had the sex success that I promised to you. It's because someone is holding out. Someone is holding back. Someone has a secret. Someone is keeping something hidden. And Joshua goes through the camp and he tracks down Achan. He finally says, Achan, what'd you do? And Achan says, well, I kept some stuff. It's buried in my tent. They go, they find it. They take the stuff out. They burn the stuff. They say, we have to get rid of this stuff. It's completely to be sacrificed to God. They burn it. But also, Achan and his entire family 
get killed. And they pile a mound of stones over Achan's body to remind everybody else that when God asks for something, God gets it. And I know you can read these passages and you can be really kind of confused about, wait a minute, why doesn't, why doesn't Achan get the grace that we think he should get? Why doesn't he get forgiven? Why does his family get punished? Well, remember, 36 people died in this raid of Ai because of the stupid thing that Achan had done. And it's not our job in this place to determine when and where God gives his grace. It's our job to thank God for the times he's given it to us. Then chapter 8, God says to Joshua, he says, go ahead, this time you're going to win. I'm going to give you some tips, some pointers on how to do a better job of fighting. And so God actually gives them a battle plan. They, they fight, they win, and this time God says, you can have all the spoils. See, God wasn't holding out on them. He just wanted the first. And then everything else that the land provides gets given to them as a gift from God. As we keep walking through the passages, you'll eventually get to chapter 8, verse 30. And in chapter 8, verse 30, Joshua takes kind of a break from the battle, and he gets all the people to line up. Some of them are on one mountainside. Some of them are on another mountainside. These mountains are facing each other, hills really. And uh, they're yelling back and forth. And these people are yelling, God's going to bless you if you obey him. And these people are yelling back, God's going to curse you if you disobey him. And they do this whole thing, and Joshua confirms the covenant, renews the covenant with God. He writes the Ten Commandments on a a piece of stone that then gets put on display. And there's a fascinating thing that happens where we are told that all the people hear all the words of God from what Moses had said. And there's an extra thing that shows up here. In chapter 34, chapter, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 34, it says, Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. See, here's the thing. God isn't all about just killing the people who lived in Canaan because they were foreigners. We talked about that a little bit last week, about how a lot of these people, like the people of Ai and the people of Jericho, they end up dead. But God is not about killing all the foreigners. In fact, there are some foreigners who begged for mercy, and those foreigners were allowed to be with them, and those foreigners received the word of God just like everybody else. And so here's the deal. God would, for the foreigners in their midst, including, remember, Rahab from the previous story, if a person asks for mercy, they get it. And God says, listen, I don't care what you look like, where you've come from. I don't care what's in your past. If you come to me, you have nothing to fear. Let's put it this way. You have nothing to fear if you are all in with God. Achan, the guy who was an Israelite but was hiding from God, gets killed. The foreigners who are for God experience the blessing of God's word and living with his people. Just to put an icing on the cake, the writer of the book of Joshua gives the entirety of chapter 9 to this same basic principle. Again, I think you should read this this week. It's just important for us to talk about it a little bit. In chapter 9, 
all of chapter 9 is the story of these guys named the Gibeonites, people from a city called Gibeah or a region called Gibeah. And they hear of God's power and they decide they are going to ask for mercy. And so they're afraid they're going to be killed. And so what they do is they take on a uh, disguise and they pretend to be wanderers. They don't, they, they don't say they live nearby. They pretend to be wanderers. And so they come and they say, oh, we're just wandering through the land. Would you give us safety and security? Would you promise that you won't kill us? And then the Israelites promise, yeah, sure, you're just wandering through. And then these people go back to their hometown and the Israelites find them. And they're like, wait a minute, this is one of the towns God told us to wipe out. Why did you fool us like this? And the Gibeonites say something amazing. It's the end of chapter 9. Something amazing. Verse 24, they answered Joshua, your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that's why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. See, what's going on is these people feared but they feared in a way that sometimes we don't. See, what our fear does is our fear frequently causes us to go dark. I'm afraid of God. I'm afraid of the people. And if they knew the things that I knew, if they knew the things that I was hiding, they wouldn't like me so much. And so in my fear, I become a hider. And I cover myself around with whatever I'm trying to do to hide the real me, to hide the secret sin, to hide the stuff. And I don't want anybody to know. And my fear causes me to hide. My fear causes me to disguise. But there's another thing fear can do. Fear can move us in the direction of the one who can provide protection. In the direction of the one who can provide safety and security. These people say, I heard about God and we were afraid for our lives. So that's why we came to you. That's why we came to you. See, the principle of God is pretty clear. Fear is not always a bad thing. Fear should move us toward God in humility. And guess what happens when we move toward God? Every single person, every single person in the entirety of Scripture, in the entirety of history, Every single person who moves toward God in humility receives grace and forgiveness. See, what Jesus himself would dictate, I believe, to the heart of the Apostle John. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. John, the guy who was closer to Jesus than anyone else. John, the guy who knew Jesus better than anyone else. John, the guy who knew that Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross, not for his own sin, but for yours. John would say, my God is faithful. You just expose it. You just confess it. You just bring it to the surface. Let the light of God shine on it. You tell it to God. Tell it to someone else. Let the thing you're hiding come out to the surface. Let it be confessed. And if you confess it, if it gets exposed, if the light shines on it, then God's light can do something amazing. It can forgive. And it can not just forgive. It can purify. It can cleanse. And it can leave you righteous. See, if you're hiding something from God, you have very many reasons to fear. 
If you're hiding something from God, you're under a curse. But if you come to God in humility and confession, He guarantees, He promises forgiveness and grace and cleansing and purity. So listen, I'm not exactly sure what you're hiding today. Are you hiding something? Fearless people have nothing to hide because the only way to become fearless is to get rid of the things you're hiding. Perhaps today, one of the things we talked about has struck a chord with you. Maybe you're one of the people who has been hiding the portion of your income that should be going to God and you've been hiding it for yourself. Maybe you're a person today who's been hiding yourself. God deserves to have all of you, but you've been hiding you, and you haven't given God you yet. Maybe you're hiding a secret sin that involves your body. You're giving in to temptation. People don't know. Maybe some people know, but they have given you a pass on it or whatever. Maybe today's the day that you just say, I'm coming clean with all this stuff. I'm getting my act together with my money. I'm getting my act together with my heart. I'm getting my act together with my body, how I use my eyes, how I experience, how I respond to temptation. I'm getting my act together today because guess what? No longer will I allow the things that I hide to actually keep me from my God. Instead, I'm going to let it be exposed. I'm going to come forward. I'm going to confess. I am going to reach out to God and I'm going to say, God, I'm yours and yours alone so that he can give me forgiveness and cleansing and healing. That's what communion's about. We come forward. We've got bread on either side of the room. We've got gluten-free crackers over here. We've got grape juice. We come forward. We take the piece of bread that reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us in death. We dip it in the grape juice to remind us of Jesus' body that was covered with his own blood that he shed for us to be forgiven of sins. We eat it to receive it into ourselves and to say, Jesus, one more time, I receive you into my life. I'm holding nothing back. You can have all of me. We bring our offerings. We bring our tithes. We bring our declarations that God gets first place in our finances. And we live this week walking a life that says God gets first place in every aspect of my life. I want to give you just a few moments of reflection. Take some time in quiet in this place and say, God, how are you speaking to me? And let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.